truth. Uh, Let me pray, and uh, then I'll read the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that we live uh, in the promise of uh, the return of Jesus Christ and all that that means. I pray for those of us who are here today who are discouraged, who are cynical, who are angry or sad, worn down, uh, tempted to give up uh, because of their sin and the sin uh, that is around them, uh, that you would bring hope to bear, uh, the blessed hope that we have uh, in your soon coming. Help us, Jesus, to uh, uh, entrust ourselves more fully into your hands and to eagerly anticipate, uh, as your New Testament saints did, uh, your soon arrival. So help us with that today, we pray. Encourage our hearts. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. So Revelation 22, let me read this text. It's in the bulletin and also up on the screens behind me. This is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So one of the things that should jump out at you in this text is the repetition of the word come, right? That the people who were receiving this, uh, the church uh, there at uh, near the end of the first century were uh, eager for Jesus to come back, looking forward to it. It was their heart cry. Come quickly, come, come, we want you to come, right? Uh, Which, frankly, for many of us is an alien thought. Unless you're suffering, unless you're grieving, unless uh, you're in some sort of difficulty. For most of us, this is not something that we spend a lot of time and energy thinking about. In fact, it would be a big interruption to most of our plans, right? Right? But clearly, the New Testament church hung on the promise uh, that Jesus would return soon. Yesterday, we uh, uh, said goodbye to our middle son. He is going to go on a 120-day pseudo-deployment, and uh, his almost fiancé was with us to see him off. And uh, you could tell, you know, she's not super happy about this, and uh, he's not super happy about it. and after she uh, came back from the airport, uh, we were talking with her and we said, you know, are you, you doing okay? And she said, yeah, yeah, I'm all right. You know how that is, right? Yeah, I'm great. I'm all right. Uh, she's like, I, you know, uh, I've, I've gotten used to this. Well, on the one hand, I think, you know, okay, it's good that she's getting used to it. On the other hand, getting used to it seems like resignation in some ways. Seems like kind of just a sad acceptance of the way things are. Um, And 
I'm certain as the time grows closer for this his, uh, time away to, to be done, she'll be uh, uh, growing in anticipation of seeing him again, as we will too. But the fact is that's not unlike the way, uh, frankly, the, the church exists today. Uh, uh, for many of us, uh, the, the, the thought that Jesus will return uh, is just something we don't uh, get uh, a lot of thought to. And the way we, we kind of live in the present because we've gotten used to the way things are. Right? And so all of this talk in the New Testament about Jesus coming back, uh, as C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, that there are these rumors, you know, on the pages of the New Testament about the fact that Jesus is returning and that we can have hope in something outside of our own efforts or we can have hope in something outside of the, the, the perfectibility of man, that, that, that that's something that we actually give ourselves to, Right. But for most of us, for many of us, the fact I'm sure you didn't spend a lot of time this week thinking, I want Jesus to come back. In fact, I, as I've thought about my own life, you know, only when I am really uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in some sort of pit of despair or when I'm really disgusted with myself or with the world in which I live, or I want, um, you know, to my shame, when I was uh, in college, I used to really eagerly anticipate Jesus' second coming before final exams. You know, I'm like, this would be a real gift, Jesus, if you'd come this week before I have to take that calculus exam. <laughs> you know, that, that'd be awesome. Um, but uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is, for most of us, it's, we're kind of out of line, frankly, with the, what the scriptures say about what our kind of anticipation of that should be, right? So Scott put my notes up there. So for most of us, the biblical promise that Jesus himself gives, he says here, behold, I'm coming soon, is rarely in our hearts and minds, right? Um, and I think part of that is, as we'll, as we'll unpack this morning, is the, the New Testament church was, was such a, an oppressed uh, and such a pressed group of people uh, that they recognized that their hope had to be rooted in something other than their competence or their ability or or the perfectibility or or something that could happen to make this world suddenly a great place to be. And so certainly the thought that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead, which is what we say when we say the creed, right? That we not only did we do we believe that he came once, that he's going to come again. And when he comes, he's going to come not as a baby in a manger like he did the first time, not as some kind of quiet, meek, uh, uh, out of, you know, kind of uh, almost invisible person to, to many people. He will come as a judge and the whole world will see him, right? The scriptures tell us that he will come to judge the living and the dead, those living in the cemetery and those only visiting. That seems to us kind of archaic, right? That seems really old and weird. How's that going to happen? I don't understand. How is, how is this going to work? It, uh, you know, it, things just kind of keep going the way they're going. I don't understand how that's going to happen. Um, secondly, it seems an awfully Old Testament, all this talk about wrath and judgment and, and all of that kind of stuff. That doesn't seem to be something I should in, uh, look forward to or something that I should be very excited about. It seems kind of remote, Seems, you know, impossible. Uh, and here we are, uh, 2000 years later and he's not shown back up. And frankly, a little scary. Terrifying. Actually, for many of us. And so anything that, you know, is, 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 you know, kind of terror uh, inducing within us, we'd, we'd rather not 
think much about. Next slide, Scott. So, and especially when we read about what Jesus says here and he gets the church fired up with this promise that when he comes, he is going to bring his recompense with him to repay each one for what he has done. And so if you take that at face value, when you read that, that should that should draw you up a little bit. It should make you think, whoa, 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 what, to be repaid for everything that I've done. Um, what you know, what's it going to be like? Am I going to stand in front of Jesus and he's going to say, you remember that time you gossiped? Remember that time you complained? Remember that time you lied? Remember that time you stole? Remember that time you worshiped something other than me? Remember? Anybody want to add to the list, right? <laughs> right? And so we read that and we think, oh, and I'm going to be judged based on that. I'm going to be judged based on these, these, these kinds of things that somehow or other these things will be, you know, they're, they're, you know, what am I going to do about that, right? And so, uh, so as we, as we see that and we think about that, and it's, it seems like, and if you're thinking at all, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, I thought, I thought you got into heaven and I thought you, you got it to, to, uh, to, to live forever based on not what you did, but what Jesus did, right? But clearly, one of the things that the New Testament tells us is that, uh, as we look at our lives, uh, the, the, the coming that Jesus is going to bring is not just he's coming back here to tell everybody everything's okay and things are going to continue as they are, but that he's coming to judge and his judgment, and I'll say this again, I got this from, from uh, Fleming Rutledge. I think she's a, she's a great theologian. You know, judgment for the Christian is not condemnation. Judgment for the Christian is the opportunity to see the righteousness that Jesus Christ lived and died to bring to bear come to full fruition in our lives, that our sin is judged, uh, but we are judged because we are in him and we are found to be his own, his bride, the one who's saying come, right? Um, and see, we magnify this by the very next phrase when Jesus says he's coming to bring his recompense to repay each one for what he's done. Because he says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. You don't have, you, you don't want the, uh, the, the, to have access to the tree of life right now, believe it or not. That's why God in his mercy barred uh, Adam and Eve from being able to get back to the tree of life. Because if you and I were to go to eat of the fruit of the tree of life now, what would happen to us? We would be confirmed eternally alienated from God. But because Jesus has come, because he has shed his blood, because he cleans us, because we are hidden in him, because we have his righteousness. What's true of us now is the fact that we have access to the tree of life and we have access to the very city of God because Jesus is the gate. He is the way. We enter through him. And and it gives us an op- judgment will give us an opportunity to magnify that. Because when you see the weight of your sin... When you see the weight of, of what Jesus Christ did, the, 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 uh, uh, the weight of what he paid, uh, the weight and the worth of his shed blood for you, when you see that, when you come to grips with that, when you're judged by that, it magnifies the cross, it magnifies the gospel, it magnifies the grace of God out of all proportion that we could ever imagine. And so the judgment is an opportunity for the grace and the mercy of God to be displayed to his people and for us 
to have our tears wiped away and reminded of how great and awesome and how powerful and profound the cross of Christ is. That it reigns. Right? And so as we think about this, this part of judgment, that for the believer, that is something that he should be, we should be eagerly anticipating, right? But I think for us to, to kind of take this text at face value, for us to, to take this text, uh, we, we, have to, we have to come to grips with the thing that probably, uh, I think there are three things that probably keep us from being in line with this eagerly anticipating uh, Jesus' second coming. So I think the three things that keep us from the eager anticipation of glory is our own judgmentalism, our own comfort, and our own lack of assurance that our robes have been washed, right? So first, judgmentalism. Well, you know, one of the things that I think happens to us often is, you know, we are very keen to say, you know, we need Jesus to come back and to judge those people, <laughs> right? And, and sometimes, I, you know, you're tempted to think, I can't wait for Jesus to come back because they're going to get theirs. <laughs> those people over there? Oh, man, it's going to be awesome to see them get what's coming to them. You ever think like that? I do all the time, right? Or or we look about and we say, you know, wow, we need Jesus to come and extend his righteousness because that institution or that group of people or those things over there, you know what? They're awful. They need to be judged. They need to be condemned. Uh, they're, uh, they are terrible people. They're, they're terrible institutions and they need to be done away with. And one of the first things Jesus is going to do when he comes back is he's going to turn those people into cinders. Right? Now, maybe you're not as dramatic as that. But certainly we, we look about us and we comfort ourselves with the thought that those outside of ourselves uh, will be judged. And we say that Jesus will come back and he'll make everything right. He'll set everything right. Everything that's been unjust, everything that's been wrong, everything that's been uh, terrible uh, about human oppression in the world will be done away with once and for all. And I can't wait. The problem with that is the reason why that tends to come back on us is because if we have a glimmer of honesty about it is that what we recognize is that when Jesus comes, his righteousness will cover all of the earth. That's certainly true. Jesus will certainly make everything right. He'll set the world right. But if Jesus has to set the world right, then what that means is I need to be set right myself. Right? I'm bent. I'm broken. And so all that is within me, my flesh, all of those, those things that are at work within me, those things have to be judged and set right as well. And that the cross has its full sway in my life. We want the cross to have this full sway in our world, but we also want it to have it in our own heart. And so when we uh, look forward to the righteousness of God sweeping across this planet, we must also temper our joy at that with the understanding that it must sweep across my heart and my life. I need to be changed just as much, if not more, than the world, right? Secondly, I think the other thing that keeps us from looking forward to this is our comfort, right? Uh, you have, as C.S. Lewis wrote, a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. 
Do you have a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy? Do you feel like you're on the wrong side of the door to another world and that Jesus must open that door to get you to the place uh, uh, where uh, true joy is found? Well, frankly, for many of us, the, the truth of the matter is we're so comfortable and we've led lives of comfort and we've spent our time and our energy on making sure that our lives are comfortable, that if Jesus were to show up today, it would interrupt our plans for brunch. <laughs> and I like my brunch and I don't want my brunch interrupted. So, Jesus, can you delay your coming until two o'clock when I'm done with brunch? Right. Because the fact of the matter is, unless unless you have some sense of discomfort, some sense of dissatisfaction, unless you have some sense that you really haven't found in this world all that would that uh, 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 what you're ultimately looking for, then the fact of the matter is, you've grown so comfortable that the 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 righteousness that Jesus would bring, the the glory that He would bring, the change that He would bring, would be an interruption to your plans. And for many of us, we're way too comfortable with the way things are. And we've made our peace way too easily with the way things are, right? These words here are written to sufferers primarily. The New Testament church was an oppressed minority. The New Testament church was barely a speck on the uh, uh, social map of the world. Uh, They were often hated, often, uh, uh, um, well, martyred. And the fact of the matter is, the promise of the second coming of Christ was something that, you know, the uncomfortable, the suffering are eagerly anticipating. Then the third one, lack of assurance. And what I mean by that is I think if you, if, if you lack the, 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 the assurance that you really are in Christ, if you lack the assurance today that you really belong to him, if you lack the assurance today that the cross of Christ covers you, if you lack the assurance today that it's personal to you, that Jesus died for you, that Jesus lived for you, that Jesus rose again for you, if you lack this sense that these things were done for you, then your conscience is plaguing you, the devil is tempting you and condemning you, And you will think to yourself, I am in trouble. I don't want to think about this because the fact is, if, 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 if in any sense or way that Jesus might come back, am I really in him? Do I really belong to him? Have I really been converted? That's why I think in the midst of this, this thing where the, the church is saying, come and, and Jesus is saying, I'm coming and the, and the spirit says, come Lord Jesus. In the middle of that, John writes these words, right? And let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Because the fact of the matter is, listen, the, if, if, if you lack assurance today, I am here to tell you, I can assure you. I know how you can get assurance. Look to Jesus. Abandon yourself. Abandon your works. Abandon your hope to make yourself right before God because you're bent and your bentness is demonstrated in the fact that you're trying to unbend yourself by yourself, right? And here's the thing. This is the thing that, that makes the second coming of Jesus so profound. It's something that, that we, we need to be uh, so grateful for is that we are so bent and we live in a community of bentness and other bent people that we don't even see that we're bent. I'm, uh, I am over the last couple of years have been spending my time and energy on, on home improvement. 
and uh, I'm really good at tearing stuff down. I'm not as good as building things. So we just put on a, a screen back porch, and I, I, emphasis on I, am building a patio. All the do-it-yourself manuals say uh, it's hard, but not difficult. Think about that one. It's hard, but not difficult. What they mean by that is when you put in a patio, you got to dig six to eight, ten inches deep. And then you got to fill it with gravel, right? And, of course, the gravel's in the driveway, and the patio's as far away from the driveway as it can be. So I had to buy a, a wheelbarrow. Marty's like, don't you think that's overkill? What do you need a wheelbarrow for? And I'm like, well, I don't think I can fill this thing up with a five-gallon bucket. I think it's going to take me a while to get all this gravel moved over there. And then once you get the gravel over there, you gotta you got to pack it down. And you go to Home Depot and you rent a thing called a plate compactor. Usually look that up. It's an awesome tool. Weighs about 500 pounds. <laughs> you get that stuff pressed down. And then, then you come in and you put a nice layer of sand over it. Then you set your forms up, you know, and you make sure that everything's squared up and it's good. And then, then you get your pavers and you put them down, you know. Well, I'm creative and I thought, you know, why get the bland square pavers that are all the same size? Let's be creative. Let's get the kind that are three different sizes and put those down. Surely there's a pattern somewhere where you can do this. No. And thankfully, my son and his uh, uh, almost fiance were there, and they were wise enough to say, Dad, look at the catalog that you got this stuff from. There's a picture of a patio on here. Let's follow that pattern. So that's what we've been doing. We put one down, and we mark on the little catalog picture. All right, we got that stone in place. And this is what the next one looks like. We got that in place. Well, you know, it's going great until I get to the first corner, and I'm like, wait. You know, I tolerated this quarter inch that I was off in this corner behind me. Well, now it's six inches off because the bentness just continues to bend and bend and bend until you're out of whack. And all of those pavers, all of us are bent and out of whack. And try as we might, we can't straighten ourselves up, right? That is why, that is why, as we look at this, uh, uh, we lack the assurance that Jesus Christ comes and in his grace straightens us because we could never do it ourselves. So this, these things keep us from crying out with the closing words of the Bible, Come, Lord Jesus. And so just as it took the coming of Christ into our world uh, and in coming in our flesh to redeem us, it will take the second coming of Christ, not just to push back the darkness, but to eradicate it. Now, here's something that you, you need to you should hear that. And for many of you activists out there and this church is full of activists, that should bring you up short because it should make you ask the question, wait, if the world's not going to be set right and I'm not going to be set right. Until Jesus comes back, why bother? 
In fact, I grew up in a church where we were taught that things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse until things get as bad as they possibly can be, and then Jesus will come back. And I always thought about that. I'm like, well, then why do anything good at all? It, it seems to me like we ought to do nothing good, and, and that way that'll speed Jesus' return, right? Well, well, let's participate in making things as bad as they possibly could be. That'll hurry up and get him here, right? So, so the fact is, what, what's the purpose? What's the point, right? Well, the, the, the fact is, the way I would like for us to describe the, the ministry of the church and the life of the church today, uh, as we wait for the kingdom to come, as we pray for that, as we seek that, and as we work, uh, knowing that our efforts will always uh, come up short and the ultimate uh, overturning of evil in the world is that we need to play a hopeful and joyful game of whack-a-mole. You know what whack-a-mole is? You ever play that game at the arcade where you put your money in and these little moles shoot their heads up out of these, out of these holes and you get a hammer and you hit them, right? The problem with that is you hit, you hit one of them and it pops right back up again. And you're like, I hit that thing 61 times. And it's still coming back up. What, what is up with that? Well, that's the, exactly the, the thing that, uh, uh, that, that, that the church does, right? So if it takes the apocalypse of Jesus Christ to eradicate the darkness, why should we do anything? Well, Peter answers that for us. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Listen, what Jesus says to us is, and the way he pictures the church is, that we are a tiny little lamp in the darkness. Now, what does a lamp do in the darkness? It can light up a table. It can light up a corner. It can light up a tiny little room, right? But it cannot light up the whole world. It can't. It's impossible. But right here, right where I am, right where God's people are, in this place... What he says to us is that we're like a lamp in the darkness. We don't eradicate the darkness, but in this little bitty place where we are temporarily, while the lamp has life, there's a little bit of light right here. And we're waiting, pointing to the day when the sun comes up and there's no longer any need for a lamp and the darkness is done away with once and for all, right? So so that's what we're doing. What we are doing as a lamp in the darkness, we do it not because we are eradicating the darkness. We do it not because we're doing away with it once and for all, but because we are pointing to and bearing witness to the morning star. The time when light comes and darkness is eradicated once and for all. There will be no more darkness. There won't even be a hint of it. There won't be a possibility of it. There won't be any sin. There won't be any death. There won't be any cancer. There won't be any oppression. There won't be any anger or bitterness or rancor. There won't be any gossip. There won't be any lust. And so in this little place where God has put me, and I emphasis there on little, the little person that I am, what God does is, what Jesus, the, the thing that he frees me to do to bear witness to his dawn, him, the morning star, to that time and that day where there will be no darkness ever again, right? And so we do things in faith and obedience to Jesus uh, that point to him and the glorious future he will bring about. That's what we do. When you're teaching those kids at Vacation Bible School in a few weeks and they are not listening and they are disrespecting you 
and uh, they're pinching one another and smacking one another and doing that when you're when you feed people or you serve people and it seems like it's done no good. No, 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 no. You're bearing witness to the world, to the kingdom that's coming, to the one, the bright and morning star who will do away with darkness once and for all. I want to leave you this morning with three great promises. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The impossible, the impossible will come to pass. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. Let's confess our sins together by using this prayer of confession uh, that's in the bulletin also up on the screens behind me. O Lord, we have not longed for your coming, nor for your kingdom as we ought. We have not denied ourselves, taking up your cross, following you, instead clinging to the things of this world and counting them dear, We have grown callous to our neighbor. We have not cried out for justice, nor cared about those who are without Christ and without hope in this world. Lord, forgive us our offenses and grant that by the power of your spirit, we might live in light of your coming again. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so the scriptures tell us on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his disciples. We do this, the Lord gives us this table, and to declare his death, his victory over sin, until he comes. Until he comes. That's how long we do it. Till he comes, right? Uh, and we do this being nourished, strengthened, and encouraged by the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his broken body for the work that he has given us to do to bear witness to the bright morning star and to the day when the kingdom of God will come and the righteousness of Christ will cover my heart will cover this world, and that every inch and every molecule of the universe will be set right once and for all, forever. We eagerly anticipate that day until he comes. Everything will be set right. I'll be set right. You'll be set right. The world will be set right. One of the things that uh, is a great gift in our family and a great tragedy in our family is uh, my father 
who uh, taught Sunday school for years and years and years, discipled a lot of people. In fact, uh, folks who were at his funeral said that they learned more about the Bible and real theology from my dad than anybody uh, that, uh, that they ever sat under. Um, it's ironic because he would work on his Sunday school lesson on Sunday or Saturday afternoons, and ironically, he's working on his Sunday school lesson, and you had to leave him alone because if you bothered him, it made him really mad and impatient, which I thought was always kind of ironic. But um, uh, he worked really hard at it, and he was gifted. He was good. And one of the things that he did and one of the things that I learned from him and one of the gifts he passed down for me is that it's good to be spontaneous and to speak extemporaneously because it's more engaging to people. The problem with that is it's risky because Shelby men don't have good filters. And so sometimes, you know, when you're thinking and you're speaking and you think, I need to illustrate this. Can I come up with an illustration? On the moment where you're preaching, teaching, something comes to mind and you think that's a great illustration. And so you use it. And then you can't believe it came out of your mouth. So my mom and dad's church had a new pastor, and his wife was not um, not presenting herself uh, in a way on Sunday mornings that I think my father thought was a good way, and that he thought it was hurting the church's witness, and that uh, she was not attractive in the best sense of the word, that people would say, wow, you know, look at... at her. She's, look at, you can just see the joy of Christ in her because her physical appearance kind of kept that from happening. And so my dad is teaching on the second coming of Christ and the fact that the Lord is going to come and make everything right. And he said, you know, the Lord will make me, will change me forever and he'll change you and he'll make these things right. And he said, Chris, you won't be stringy headed when Jesus comes back. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) My mom said, well, we can never go back to that church again. (laughs) Right? And as harsh and as hard as that is, stringy-headedness doesn't hold a candle to what needs to be straightened out in me. Right? Right? So we eat and drink today until he comes because our hope is that when he comes, the way we are now is not how we will be. And the way the world is now is not the way it will be. We will be changed because we need to be changed. And that is bringing to completion the work that Jesus Christ began when he came, lived, died, and rose again for us. That's your hope. That Jesus is for you, that he lived for you, that he died for you, that he rose again for you, and that uh, you have this promise that his kingdom will come fully in this world and in your life. You proclaim that to a body of believers somewhere. Then he says to you today to come forward, to be renewed, to be re-reminded, and to be uh, given a, an, an eager anticipation of that day when you will be set right and the world around us will be set right. As the elders and deacons come down front this morning to assist me, let me remind you that the outer ring is wine. 
Uh, the inner rings uh, are grape juice. Uh, all the bread is bread that is gluten-free. 